Let's pray together. Father, I pray that today that we would believe the words of Jesus Christ when he says that if anyone believes in him, though they die, yet will they live. That, Father, as we gather together here as your church and your people, that we would trust in Jesus Christ, that we would rest in the forgiveness of our sins that he has given to us, Lord, that though we are beset by sin, though we fail and fail and fail, Christ is good. That he forgives us over and over again without end because of his great love for us, because of his perfect blood that was shed for us. And so, Lord, today as we come to your word together, I pray, Father, that we would trust that your word is true and that your word is good, that it would rule over our lives and our hearts, that we would be changed by it, and not just in a passive way, Lord, but in an active way, that we would devote ourselves and dedicate ourselves to being Christ-like as your word calls us to and shows us how. Father, this morning as we examine the scriptures together, I pray, Lord, that we would surrender ourselves, that we would cast aside every distraction, that we would lay aside every weight that the world has laid upon us and rest in Christ. We pray this in his name and for his glory forever. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 13 this morning. We're continuing our series on the Christian life, where we're discussing some of the basic things of, Christ, of the Christian faith that are often left unsaid or, or taken for granted, that all Christians just understand these things. So far, we have discussed conversion. And we looked at the words of Jesus in John chapter 3 when he was speaking to Nicodemus where he helped us to recognize that conversion is a work of God in which he removes our dead stone heart and replaces it with a new living heart and gives us life in Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at prayer. Prayer, we talked about how prayer is pouring our hearts out to God, as, as our catechism question referenced this morning. It's pouring our hearts out to God, and it's doing so not just in the things that we desire, not just in the ways that our health is affected, but literally it is praying for things that, and, and praying in ways that align with His will and his purposes, that we pray for the things that God wants, for the things that God is doing, not just for the things that we want or the things that we are doing. And we looked at how Jesus prayed for his people in the garden as the example of this. This morning, we are going to look at what it means for us to walk in holiness, to walk in holiness. Our, our sermons over the next three weeks are all going to be kind of focused around this idea of sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness. Holiness literally means set apart. It means different. It means above. But when we speak biblically of holiness, when we speak specifically of the holiness of God, it has to do with absolute moral perfection, total uprightness. That is what God possesses and what no one else possesses. There is no one else aside from God who is totally morally pure. And so the question at hand then is this, how do we sinners according to our natures truly follow scriptural commands that say things like, be holy, for I am holy. If we, in and of ourselves, are incapable of moral perfection, how then can we do what God has called us to do 
to be holy as he is holy. Some would tell you that the answer is to abide by the law of God that you find in the scriptures. Being bound to obey every command in order to achieve and maintain our own moral uprightness. That is definitely not the answer. That cannot be it. Because we are told in the scriptures that the law cannot save us. In multiple places. One of them being Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 which says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. If holiness is absolute moral perfection, then the author of Hebrews lays out for us that the law can never make perfect those who draw near. So it clearly cannot be that we have to follow the law in every jot and tittle as the scriptures say. That can't be it. There's something else that we're being called to in that command, but what is it? What is it? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's, lo let's look to the text to work our way through this, beginning in 1 Peter 1 with verses 13 through 21, where we will see that our only hope is holiness. If you grabbed a bulletin this morning, if you got one from our, our nice usher back there, you, will, you have gotten a, a sermon listening guide, and you'll see that there's two points this morning, and that's our first one. Our only hope is holiness. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that, we be, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter here begins our text this morning by telling us to prepare our minds for action. Literally, in the original language, what this says is, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. If you're unfamiliar with that terminology, back in biblical times, the men wore what essentially amounts to long dresses. That was their garment of choice. And when it came time to work or do battle, they would do something called gird up their loins. See, they wore straps of leather or rope around their waist, and they would take their long garments, and they would gather them up and run them up between their legs and then tuck them into that strap around their waist. That is what is called girding up your loins. And that way, you can run without getting your feet tangled up in your dress. That's the idea. And so here, Peter says... Gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. So what he's saying here is, take special note of what I'm about to say. Focus in on what I am about to tell you. Think hard about these things. Oftentimes, when we come to the Scriptures, we approach them in a very nonchalant way, a very blasé way. I sit down and I think, I need to get through my Bible reading. And I just sit there and I go, okay, I finished. Check that box off. Move on about my day. But when we come to the Word of the Lord, we should not treat it in such a blasé way. We should treat it with seriousness. This is the literal Word of the God of the universe. That he has given to you. This is not casual or careless. This is intentional and important. 
And so here, like Peter, I call upon all of us to gird up the loins of our mind as we think deeply about the things of God this morning. To be ready to do battle against our own sinful flesh, against our own sinful minds, as we go to war against ourselves and fight against our own flesh. Peter continues and says, and being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. So again, he's telling us to be clear-headed and focused. So be ready for a fight and be paying attention. Focused on what you're doing. If you were to go into battle thinking about something else, you're likely not going to survive. If you go into your scripture reading, if you go into thinking about the things of God with your mind focused elsewhere, being taken captive by other things, you're likely not going to benefit much from the word of God. And so, when we approach God's word, we must be undistracted. And we must not, be, we must not have our minds being driven by other things. Some people come to the scriptures looking for things to affirm their own thoughts and beliefs, looking for things to affirm their worldview. They're willing to do what Pastor Michael and I would call hermeneutical gymnastics, where they're going to interpret the Bible in such a way that it makes them the hero, that it makes them the one who is right. That's not what the Bible is for. If you rightly read the scriptures, you are very rarely going to come away from this going, man, I am great and I'm doing a great job. Reading the Bible rightly usually means, man, I'm really terrible at this. Praise God for the grace that he has shown in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. And so he says next, he says, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. And being sober-minded, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So where do you set your hope? Do you set it on your own ability? No. Do you set it on your church membership? No. Do you set it on your baptism when you were a child? No. Do you set it upon a prayer that you prayed? No. You set your hope fully on the grace of God that is shown in Christ Jesus. And not just the grace of God that has already been shown in Christ Jesus, but the fullness of the grace of God shown in Christ Jesus when he comes again. You see, too often we spend all of our time looking backwards at what has already been accomplished by Christ on the cross and praise God for that. But we are supposed to be proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. There is more yet to come. The kingdom has not yet come in all its fullness. Remember what we saw in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus told all those around him as they bragged about the temple and how glorious and majestic it was. And Jesus said, this is all going to be torn down and you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory. When we set our hope upon Jesus Christ, we are not merely setting it upon what he has already done in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are setting our hope fully on the grace that is yet to be revealed at his second coming. Why? Because when he comes again, we will no longer be trapped in these bodies of death. We will no longer wrestle against sin as we do now every moment of every day. We will be totally and completely free. That is what we look forward to. That is where we set our hope. It's the key. There's a great song that we sing here from time to time called Christ Our Hope in Life and Death, which echoes this line of thought. The song begins with the question, what is our hope in life and death? And then we answer, Christ alone. Christ alone. If we are to have any hope in this life. It can only be in the grace of God in Christ. And if you're unfamiliar with that word grace, if you don't really know what it means, it means unmerited favor. It means God pouring out his goodness, his preferential treatment upon you, even though you do not deserve it. If at any point you think to yourself, I really deserve for God to be good to me, 
You need to take a couple steps back because you do not. None of us do. Every good thing we have from God is the result of unmerited favor. Peter's setting this after telling us to prepare for battle and to make sure that we are sober-minded is significant because even after that, even if we gird up the loins of our mind, even if we are sober-minded, we have no hope of emerging victorious in what lies ahead apart from Jesus. We must rest in his grace. He goes on and he says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There is a difference, or there should be, as Christians, between who we used to be and who we are now. And it's not just in what we do. It's in what we submit ourselves to. Because here's the truth, folks. You are still a sinner even after salvation, you still have sinful flesh and a sinful mind that is bent toward disobedience, that is bent toward self-exaltation, that, that is bent toward just flat-out wrongness. And so Peter here is saying, don't be conformed to that. Don't allow yourself to be taken captive by the same sinfulness that held you captive before Christ. Because what you have now in Christ is something you didn't have then. Because before Christ, you cannot resist it. It permeates every part of who you are. But in Christ, you now have a brand new ability. You have gained something different than you had before. Because now, what you have is the ability to resist sin. You have the ability to say, no, I am not going to do that. I am going to choose what is pleasing to God. You didn't have that before. Before, our hearts are like what they said all the way back in Genesis, that the thoughts of the intentions of the hearts of man are only evil continually. But in Christ, you can resist sin. And that is why Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed. So consider that. Parents, think about how you train up your children in obedience. I have three very young children, two of whom we are working on obedience. They're at home right now watching on the camera. Hi, guys. And one of the things that we work on with our children is obey right away. Listen to what mom and dad say and then do it. If you don't understand, that's okay. Do it anyway. Then ask me a question. Don't go, but why? But I want to do this. But I want to do that. No, 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 no. Just obey. Then bring your questions after. We are called to follow after Christ in the same way. You are, call, you are going to be called to do things as a Christian that do not make sense to you, that do not make sense to the world around you. And guess what? You're not supposed to sit there and go, I'm not doing it until somebody explains it to me. No, you are supposed to just obey. Just obey the word of the Lord. Just listen and obey as obedient children. Refusing to obey is the same thing as being conformed to those old passions of your former ignorance. Peter continues in verse 15 where he says, but as, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so what we're called to is holiness. We are called to moral upright perfection. But we can't do that. So there's clearly something else at work here. Clearly this is rooted in something greater than ourselves. When we consider this holiness, we must rely completely and totally on the grace that we mentioned. We have to rest, rest in his grace because his holiness has been given to us. But when Peter says that we are waiting on the grace that is fully known 
at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Do you know why he says that? Because when Jesus comes back, guess what? That holiness is all yours. Because sin will be no more. And you will have moral uprightness in yourself. That's what we are waiting on. That is what we are looking ahead to. That is what we are resting and trusting in. Apart from Christ, we cannot be holy. Because apart from him, all we have is sin. But when Christ comes in, he takes our sin upon himself and gives us his holiness. Peter then says, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So before he talked about being obedient children, and now he says, and if you call on him as father. So he's setting this relationship of fathers and children up. But here's the thing you need to understand. Here's the thing that Israel did not understand. Israel far too often rested on the fact that God as their father would never show them discipline. They thought he's our father. He will only do good to us. And as such, they rebelled. As such, they rejected him. As such, they abandoned his law. They ignored his word and they did whatever they wanted to. The book of Judges says right there at the end, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Our adult Sunday school class has been going through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. And what do you see in those books? You see even the king just doing what he wants. You cannot look at God as our father and think he will only ever do good to us. In the sense that we define good, okay? Because when we define good, we think niceness. He'll give us presents. He'll never discipline us. He'll never, he'll never get on to us for doing something wrong. Well, guess what? All of us know children who have parents like that. And those children are all little royal terrors. Our father is a good father. And he disciplines us. And not only that, but because he is perfectly morally upright, what does Peter say that he will do? He judges impartially according to each one's deeds. When God looks upon us, father to children, he is looking upon our deeds. He does not say, oh, well, they're my child, so their deeds don't count. Nope, it's not how it works. He judges impartially because he is perfectly good. And thus, you are held to account for your deeds. So what should we do? We should conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. Not terror, not that sort of fear, not the kind of fear that you get when you're walking alone through a dark alley surrounded by enemies, but the fear of his discipline. Just in the same way that children fear discipline from their parents. One of the reasons why it is good to spank your children is that they learn a... Sonny's head popped up when I said that. That was so funny. I'm sorry. I said, spank your children. Sonny was looking at her clipboard. I said, spank. What's going to happen when I get home? Oh, no. What's the pastor saying? Don't worry, Sonny. You're okay. I'm sorry about that, folks. I got distracted there. Okay. One of the things that, that, one of the reasons why we spank our children is so that they learn to associate disobedience with pain. And they know it hurts me when I do something wrong. That's the whole point. The other day I had to spank my daughter, Evelyn, not Jenny Kate, just in case you were curious. And through tears she said, I don't know why you do this to me. And I said, it's to teach you to do what is right. How does this teach me to do what's right? It just hurts. That's the point. The pain 
helps you to remember that when we do what is wrong, there are consequences. God is the same way. He disciplines us. Now, in Christ, we no longer face his wrath, his complete and total fury. But we are not free from his discipline because he's a good father. And so we conduct ourselves with fear because we know that he will discipline us. And notice what Peter says, throughout the time of your exile. This is not our home. Too often we as Christians conduct ourselves as though this is going to last forever. We set up our own little kingdoms and everything revolves around our own little kingdoms. And guess what? All this is going to pass away. You're going to die. Everyone you love is going to die. Everyone you know is going to die. And guess what? You're going to be forgotten. And none of it's going to matter. But Christ's kingdom is forever. This is not our home. This is a temporary dwelling. These bodies are not our homes. These are temporary dwellings. And the older you get and the more things start to fall apart, the more thankful you are for that truth. Amen? And so we conduct ourselves that way because we know that we cannot please God apart from Jesus Christ. We know that our sin is crouching behind the door waiting to attack us. We know that. And so we conduct ourselves this way, trying to do what is right. And God knows that we can't do this ourselves. That's why he literally paid the price for us. That's why. Not with gold or silver, things that are perishable, things that will pass away, he paid the ransom, he paid the price with the precious blood of his own son, which is perfect and imperishable. Peter says, it's like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So going back to obedience to the law, to doing what is right, when they messed up, which they always did, you know what they had to do? They had to sacrifice. They had to offer up a lamb without blemish or spot. But here's the thing. There are no, there's no such thing as a lamb without blemish or spot. They're all a little bit imperfect in some way. You offer the best you can. But Christ is the perfect lamb without any blemish or spot. And when they offered him up, when the Lord offered him up as our sacrifice, no other sacrifice is ever needed. Because his blood covers every sin that ever was or ever will be for those who are his people. And so that's why Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, right there. Again, think back to what he said about children being conformed to your former passions. Here he's talking about the feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers. Not just our own sinfulness, which is passed down from our first parents, Adam and Eve, it naturally occurs within us. It's not just that. It's also the law. It's also the law which was passed down from generation to generation which cannot save. The law ultimately is futile. Paul says that ultimately the law was a tutor that brings us to Christ. That word there, that word that's translated as tutor, is a special kind of servant in the household whose responsibility it was to handle the lessons, the school lessons for the children. So in a certain manner of speaking, Paul is literally saying that the law is a school bus that brings us to Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was never to save. The purpose of the law was to say, you can't do this. You need a savior. The Jews thought, we can do this. We'll just put extra laws up. We can't work on the Sabbath? Okay, so we gotta define what work is. And we gotta figure out how far you can walk before it's work and how much you can do in the house before it's work and how much you can do this or that or the other. And they thought, all we gotta do is we just gotta nail this down and do this exactly right. And guess what? The Savior of the world stood right in front of them and they completely missed him. If that isn't a testimony to the futile nature of the law, I don't know what else is. 
Those who knew the law better than anyone had God himself right in front of them, and they killed him. The law cannot save. To have holiness, we must have Christ. Peter goes on in verse 20, giving us more about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter, again, here, in in diving into who Jesus is, says that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is a wordy way to say that Jesus is eternal. There is only one who is eternal, and that is God. And so this is Peter saying, Jesus, our Savior, is God. In case you missed that point, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But, since he was made manifest, he was made known. He was put to be in front of our eyes that we would see him, that we could touch him, that we could know him. And why did this happen? So that God could show off? No. For our sake. Because of the love with which God loved us, Christ came for our sake. He says in verse 21, who through him Our believers in God, our faith in God comes from Christ. Our belief in God comes from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are incapable of having real, true belief in God. And what did God do? He raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Showed Christ to be God in the resurrection. So that your faith and hope are in God. That hope there bookends this section. Remember at the beginning, set your hope fully on the revelation of Christ. And here at the end, that God made Christ manifest for our sake, that he raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It helps us to understand that while our only hope to please God is holiness, it is not our holiness that pleases God because we have none. All of what God did in Christ is to give us His holiness. And that is our hope. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, where he says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Christ came so that holiness would be given to us. His holiness would be given to us. And so we set our hope upon Christ and his holiness. He has perfectly obeyed the law while we could never do that. What's really in view here is not the same kind of holiness that God has because that has been given to us in Christ. And so when Peter says, you must be holy, he's talking about something else. He's talking about something else. A different kind of holiness. A striving for the sake of the gospel. A striving for the sake of the glory of God to do what is right, not because it is what is required of us for salvation, but because it is required of us to love Jesus well. The next thing that we see is that we we get this holiness, this kind of holiness, according to the purity of the gospel. The purity of the gospel. starting in verse 22, reading through chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, 
but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter transitions here into a couple of different things. But he begins by talking about how our souls have been purified. And in English, and you read that, it almost sounds like he's saying, you have purified your own souls by obedience. Now, I want you to understand here, that's not what he's actually saying. Because what he's talking about is the truth of the gospel. Obedience to the truth of the gospel. What he's saying is, faith in Christ is what has made you holy. Faith in Christ is what has purified your souls. Now, as we talked about two weeks ago in our sermon on conversion, you are not the author of your faith. Christ is. Christ is both the author and the perfecter or finisher of your faith. And so, in believing what we just covered in verse 21, that is how your soul is purified, and that belief, even the belief, comes from God. There is nothing that you contribute to any of this process to this point. It's all the work of the Lord. And so what happens is this purity of our souls through the gospel leads us to love one another and to do so sincerely. I think that that's an important thing to remember because all of us would say we love one another but do we love one another sincerely? Do we love one another in a self-sacrificial way? Are we willing to give and give and give even if it means that we have nothing? Because oftentimes we love with limits. I'm willing to love to a point. I'm willing to lay down most of my life. I'm willing to surrender most of myself. I'm willing to love my neighbor as part of me but not as myself. A sincere love born out of the truth of the gospel having purified our souls, a sincere love is a self-sacrificial laying down of our lives. That's what it looks like. And we do this because we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Here's why this is significant and important. Because if you love so much that it literally costs you your life, you know that it doesn't matter. Because when you pass from this life, where do you go? You go to eternal life in heaven with God. Who cares? Who cares if giving of yourself means that you die? You gain from that. Do you not understand? To live as Christ and to die is gain. As long as you live, you are to do the work of the gospel, the work of the spreading of the gospel, and then you die. Praise God. And how does this happen? How do we become converted? How do we learn to love one another with a sincere love? How do we do this? Well, Peter says there in verse 23, that it happens through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So how do these things take place in us? Through the word of God. This is talking about scripture, of course. But it's not only talking about Scripture. Consider how the author of Hebrews speaks of the Word in Hebrews chapter 4. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
Notice how the author of Hebrews transitions there, speaking of the word, doing this work. And then in verse 13, what does he say? But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. Him. The word is also a person. John tells us in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is why it's significant that Peter quotes Isaiah here. Because what he's doing is he is helping us to understand and see that we can trust the word to stand forever because the word is Christ. The word is Christ. He is the word of God made manifest. All of the things that God has said and promised in the scriptures are found in the person of Jesus. And so when the Bible talks about the word being living and abiding, it's talking about Christ. The scriptures are speaking of the living word himself. This has some significant implications for us, really important things to think about. One of them is that our connection to the Word is our connection to Christ. Some people will tell you, you don't need the Bible to have a relationship with Jesus. Those people are wrong and foolish. There is no way to have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is separated from the Scriptures. Because He is the Scriptures and the Scriptures are Him. The other thing is that our connection to Christ is our connection to the Word. And what I mean by that is that disobedience to the one is disobedience to the other. If the Scriptures say, do this, and you say, I don't have to, it's literally the same thing as if Jesus was standing in front of you saying, do this, and you saying to his face, I don't have to. Now, Every single one of us in this room would quickly say, I would never do that. But every single one of us in this room should examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, do I do that with the scriptures though? Do I know what the scriptures tell me to do and then say, eh, who cares? I know the scriptures say I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but I really don't like that guy. He cuts his grass way too early on Saturdays. He lit my lawn on fire. I don't want to talk to him. I don't have to love that neighbor. We often cast aside the scriptures when they're inconvenient. And when we do that, what we are doing is being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. And we are saying, Christ is not the king of my life. Is that something that a Christian would say? I would say no. Despite our inability to be holy on our own, we are still called to strive to do what is laid out for us in God's word. Not because it gives us life, but because it makes us more like Jesus. As I said earlier, this is called sanctification which we're going to be digging into more deeply over the next two weeks as Pastor Michael and Brother Scott both preach for us. That's the kind of holiness we're called to. Setting ourselves apart from the world by pursuing Christ in sanctification. Becoming more like Jesus through obedience to the Scriptures. So where the Scriptures say don't lie, Christians should say, I'm going to tell the truth. Where the scriptures say, don't commit adultery, Christians should say, I'm going to be faithful to my spouse. Where the scriptures say, give to Caesar what is Caesar, what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, Christians should say, I'm going to support the work of ministry, and I'm going to pay my taxes. Uh-oh. Pastor went there. A couple people went, wait, what now? Sanctification means obedience to God's word because that is obedience to Christ. Peter continues in chapter 2 and he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
our approach to God's word, excuse me, I, I skipped a section. This changes how we interact with one another. God's word and our adherence to it, our devotion to it, changes how we interact with one another. It keeps us from having all of these little conflicts. And I want you to be honest and think about the fact that what are most churches known for today? Are they known for unity and peace and love? Or are they known for splitting over dumb stuff? We are most often known in the world for our conflicts rather than our love. That is not putting away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. The Word of God and our Christ-likeness keeps us from being completely self-serving in our relationships because Christ was not self-serving toward us. He literally laid down his life to the point of death, and he calls us to do the same. And so our relationships with one another, if we are pursuing holiness and walking in holiness, are supposed to be marked by the same things that mark Jesus' life, laying it down for the sake of others. And Peter continues in verse 2, and he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, the way that this happens in us, the way that these things take place is when we approach God's word in the same way that a newborn baby approaches their mother's milk. They cannot get enough. One of the things that surprised me when my wife had our first child was how much that child ate. It was just constant. Eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And she'd start to cry and I'd think, surely you can't be hungry again. Nope, she's hungry again. That is how we should approach the word of God. When we think about the Bible, we should think, I can't get enough of this. I need more of it. I'm hungry again. I got to have more scripture. I got to have more scripture. I got to have more scripture. But instead, we think, well, I had my one Nutrigrain bar for the day. Put it away. I don't need to eat again until tomorrow. If I have time, who knows? Maybe it won't be for a couple days. Hope that Nutrigrain bar will last me a while. That's not how we're called to approach the scriptures. We should approach it as a newborn infant longs for milk because it is our connection to life. We get our nourishment through God's word. It is the way that we grow up into our salvation. As Paul says in Philippians 1.27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The true marker of salvation for us is that we both long for the pure spiritual milk and that we grow up into salvation. That our lives are worthy of the gospel, that we look like Jesus. That's why Peter ends this section by saying, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, what he's saying is, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, these things will be present in you. No one who has tasted that the Lord is good walks away and says, I don't need the word of God. I don't need it. Our pursuit of holiness needs the scriptures. And if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, you will love the word of God. Christians are called to walk in holiness. And we do this by being found in Christ and by being connected to him through his word, growing up into Christ-likeness. And so this morning, I just want to tell you, if you have no desire for God's word or very little desire for God's word, that's a bad sign. That's a really bad sign. 
And if you have no presence of sanctification or growing Christ-likeness in your life or very little presence of sanctification in your life, that is also a bad sign. For far too long, churches have preached an easy believism gospel based upon the idea of some sort of fire insurance where they said all you have to do is pray a prayer, get dunked in some water, and you're free forever. And you can get dunked and walk out the doors and never come back. But it don't matter because you're saved, right? Once saved, always saved. Listen, once saved, always saved is absolutely true. But... Far too many people never met the once saved threshold. They're leaning real hard on that always saved part. They never got the once saved part down. Because what the scriptures tell us is that once saved, you long for the word of God. You grow in Christ's likeness because it is walking in holiness. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't care about these things. That's not a real thing. I'm going to talk more about that tonight in theology class, by the way, where we look at discipleship and growth. That wasn't intentional. It's just how it all worked out on the schedule. But that's the whole idea here. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't care about this. And so if you're here today and you don't care about this, I'm sorry to tell you, you're probably not a Christian. And I really don't want you to walk away from here and think, I'm always saved because I was once saved because you probably weren't once saved. And so my encouragement to you today, my pleading with you today is this. If you have heard this sermon and you have thought to yourself, I have no desire for the word of God. I have no markers of sanctification in my life. I don't see a growing position of Christ-likeness. I don't see love for one another in the way that the scriptures call me to. I would encourage you, plead with you, to come and talk to me or talk to Pastor Michael so that we can share with you how you too can really truly be saved. Because that's my desire. It is not my desire to convince all of you that you're not saved so that I can go, ha ha, I'm better than you. It's because I want you to know Christ the way that I know Christ, the way that the scriptures call us to know Christ. Come to Jesus and live. And if you're here this morning and you hear these things and you are convicted, you hear these things and you say, man, I have some love for God's word, but not nearly enough. I have some Christ-likeness, but not not nearly enough. First of all, be encouraged in that Christian because any desire for those things comes from God and not from you. But secondly, I encourage you to pray, to seek the Lord and commit yourself to pursuing these things. Because sanctification is something that you play a part in, that you actively participate in. Like I said, you're going to hear more about this over the next couple of weeks. But that's the call to the Christian today, is to commit yourself to these things. To recognize that our only hope is holiness, and that's the holiness that comes from Christ. And that when we seek sanctification, our holiness, we do so through the purity of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for the sometimes really harsh ways that it speaks to us. And Father, I pray that we would be convicted together by this word, that you would help us, Lord, to seek your kingdom to seek sanctification, to love your word. Father, put a desire for these things in us today. In Christ's name, amen.